This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Great to be together. Great to be together this uh, Sunday afternoon, almost. If, uh, if you would open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We just started a new series. We're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians together. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. There's a tray under the seat, and you can open up to page 554 as we talk today about gospel-centered unity in this, uh, in this new series where we are just walking our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And last week, we kind of gave an introduction uh, to, to, the, to the book and talked about how the Corinthian church was really, by anyone's estimation, uh, a troubled, troubled group of people. It was a very messed up church uh, for a lot of different reasons. And yet, as Pete referred earlier, uh, the Apostle Paul, who both founded the church and now is writing a letter to them about three years or so after the founding of the church, he is writing to them and he is thanking God for them. That's how he begins. He thanks God for them. And uh, this is, it's really quite astounding that he doesn't start with, here are your problems, but he starts with, I thank God for you, because God had acted upon them. God had uh, worked in their lives in the past. God was present currently. He was able to identify ways that God was present in their church today, even amidst all their problems, or when he wrote it. And he, he also highlighted that God would keep them forever till the very end. He would sustain them. So there was this awareness of God's grace in their past, in their present, and the sustaining grace that would hold them to the end. And because of that, he's able to say, I thank God for you. And so we began to talk about last week how the gospel transforms the way we relate together as Christians. The gospel transforms the way we see one another. The gospel makes a difference in our lives uh, as a church. And so uh, we just talked about that last week, how the first place the book starts is with uh, how the grace of God changes the way we relate so that we can be thankful for one another. And today we're going to see this sort of next, um, this next step or this next uh, foundational truth about how the gospel affects our lives together. And that is that the gospel brings us unity. The gospel unifies us. And that's what the passage is about today. So I'm going to read verses 10 through 17 in 1 Corinthians 1. And uh, you can track along with me. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we study your word this morning, the very verse that we just read would be true, that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its power this morning. But to the contrary, we pray that you would visit us with power because of the message of the cross of Christ. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would give us the choice gift of conviction. We pray that you would grant us repentance. We pray that you would show us uh, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a fresh way. And we pray that you would stir our hearts to give ourselves towards building unity in the church, Lord. Unity that you shed your blood for, that you died for. Lord, give us a heart for unity among your people and help us, uh, help us be affected, Lord, by the gospel so, such that we do walk together, that we do live together, that we do seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, help us all today, we pray, and we're confident that you will speak to us from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 10, which we began with, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That verse is really sort of a topic sentence or a theme sentence for what he's going to cover in the next four chapters. In the next four chapters, he is going to talk about unity, and he's going to talk about the lack of unity that they are currently experiencing as a church, and he's going to show how the gospel cultivates unity and call them to that unity. But it's worth noting that his appeal to begin with is an appeal to brothers. Do you see that? So the first idea I want to talk about today is that he makes a gracious appeal a gracious appeal to family, a gracious appeal to family. He says, I think, uh, he says, I appeal to you brothers. Now in the ESV, there's a note there, uh, it's sort of footnoted that says it means brothers and sisters. It's an inclusive term. He's not just talking to the men in the church. When he says brothers here, he means men and women. So I'm making appeal to you who are part of the same family as I am. We're together, we're joined together as family. So important to know, we're family. And it might surprise you to know that the most common description of a Christian in the New Testament from Paul's writing is that of brothers. This is the term he uses most often, brothers or brothers and sisters. Now we typically say Christians, uh, but that term's only used, I believe, a couple times in the entire New Testament. The, the, the phrase that Paul or the descriptor that Paul uses to denote the church is brothers. His, his, his primary description is that of family, brothers and sisters. And what's interesting is of all of his references to brothers in the New Testament, one out of every three of them is found in the letter to Corinthians, to the first Corinthians. So he uses it most frequently when there's trouble when there's division, when there are problems, when, when the people in the church are resisting Paul, it's there where he most frequently reminds them that we're family together. We're joined as brothers and sisters. Now, he's not just using kind of a generic, we're all children of God, we are the world, let's hold hands and make a big circle. This is just like the unity of humanity. He's not using it in some generic sense like that. He's using the term brothers and sisters because 
all Christians have the same father. The father adopts us as his children through Christ. So when you see brothers as a reference, or perhaps even use that uh, with fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, when you see that language, keep in mind that right behind that is this picture that God is our father. He's adopted us, and so now we share a familial relationship. We're not just co-church members. We're not just part of an institution or an organization. We're together as a family because of what the father has done to bring us into his family. And so when we want to think about unity, it's most appropriate that we start with how are we unified as brothers and sisters? It's the father that unifies us. We are children of the father. And so we want to start by looking to him, by looking to our Lord. And as we look to our Lord, then we're unified together rather than just looking horizontally to build unity. We are to look to the Lord to seek to be on the same page with him and his word. And when we are, we're joined together. A helpful illustration of this is shared by A.W. Tozer, who writes the following. He gives a kind of an analogy here. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to one another than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. It's a great point. We're going to see throughout this section and throughout the book that the unity that Paul is after comes by looking heavenward. It comes by looking to Christ. It doesn't come by everyone getting all unity conscious and just thinking about how can we horizontally just sort of get along. It starts with looking to the Lord because if we are tuned to him and his word, we're in tune. We're in one accord together. So it's an appeal to family is where he starts. Secondly, it's an appeal for unity. It's a sober appeal. It's a very gracious appeal to family. Hey, we got problems here, but you're my brothers and sisters. It's also a sober appeal for unity because in this passage, look at his language. He is calling them to unity. He says, verse 10, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is sober. I'm appealing to you by Christ's name, before Christ, with him as my witness. I'm appealing that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. The word agree here uh, means to say the same thing, to say the same thing, to speak with one voice. So I'm appealing to you in the name of Christ that you all speak together, that you be saying the same thing. He's not calling them to be clones. He's not advocating a cookie cutter kind of Christianity, but he is saying you should be about the same things. You should be focused on the same thing. You should be speaking with one voice. And he says, may there not be any kind of divisions among you. May you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, we're going to see that the same mind and the same judgment has to do with the, the message of the gospel. So he wants them to be together around the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. I want you to be united, he says, in the same mind, in the same judgment. So I want you to be united around the gospel. 
The word united is an is a interesting word as well. It's used in the New Testament of the disciples when they would uh, sew their nets together. It's a word that means to be knit together. So the fishermen, uh, after a, a big catch, the nets might tear and they'd have to be mended, they'd have to be fixed. And that mending was a word which meant to knit together, to sew together. And it's a word that meant to unite, unite the net, they could say. Probably they would use a phrase like sew it together, it would be translated, but it means to unite the net. So he's saying we're all a part of the same net. It's a colorful word. We're all a part of the same net. Now be sewn together be knit together of the same mind, both focusing on Christ and his work, speaking the same thing, having the same emphasis, not only the same content around the gospel, but giving the same emphasis, giving the same profile, giving the same centrality to the gospel as well. So this is what he's calling them to. Now, why is he saying this? Well, verse 11, he says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So again, he's appealing to them as family. But somebody's people, these people from Chloe have come and brought a report to him. Now, we don't know who Chloe is. Uh, she may have been like a business person, and so these are her people. It could have been her people that worked for her that came and brought a report. Could just be she's a well-known person, and these are her relatives. These are Chloe's people. You know, I, I don't know. It doesn't really tell us who they are, but they all knew who Chloe was. And Paul, who hasn't been to the church in about three years or so, has received this message from Chloe, and Chloe's message is, man, the Corinthians are quarreling. He was with them for 18 months to found the church, and evidently things were good at the time when he left. I'm sure everything was okay, but now three years later, everybody is at each other. They are quarreling. It is a fighting, bickering, divided group of Christians. I just can't imagine that that would ever happen, can you? He said sarcastically, if you've been around the church, not just this church, but any church, any group of people on a common mission together, you will find that there are times when people, well, they just get at each other. And that's what's going on in Corinth. And, and here's what she said, the, the, here's what Paul says, verse 12, what I mean, here's the kind of division I'm talking about, that each of you says something like this. Some of you are saying, verse 12, I follow Paul. Others of you are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. The name Cephas is the name, same word as Peter. It means Peter. Or I follow Christ, which maybe that's people saying, man, I don't look to any leader. I don't need anybody. It's just me and Jesus. We don't know. But somebody's claiming to be of Christ. And so they're all emphasizing who uh, they follow. Now, they're divided because of who they follow. But these people are not divided. Paul commends Apollos. He's going to commend him in the third chapter. Peter and Paul had a disagreement at one point, but they worked that out. So they are together on the same page. Um, they all love Jesus, and Jesus loves them. So there's no d d division there. So these people aren't divided, but those who follow them are divided from one another. Now, they're probably not formal groups. Probably people didn't say, this is the Paul community group, and we all meet, uh, everyone who's following Paul meets over on this living room on Wednesday nights, and we wear our Paul t-shirts, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And the other group, well, this is the, uh, the Peter community group, and they meet over here on Tuesday nights, because we would never meet on Wednesday nights, and they have their, their flags that they wave saying, Peter is great, or whatever. So it's probably not some kind of a formal thing like that. It's probably more people just uh, identifying 
with a leader to promote themselves. The way he writes this is telling. The, the problem is that they are uh, radically individualistic. The, the verse reads, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. I is central. The I is the focus that each one is standing against someone else and appealing to a leader who represents their point of view, appealing to a leader that they say, well, I must be right because I'm like Paul. Paul started the church, so I'm with him. But then later, Apollos came in and was evidently a more gifted preacher. So somebody's saying, well, I follow Apollos. He was a much better speaker than Paul. I prefer him. And someone you know, else says, well, no, I'm going back further. I'm going back to the founding of the church on the day of Pentecost. Paul wasn't there, Apollos wasn't there, but Peter was there. So that's my guy. So I am here, I'm right, because that's the one I'm appealing to. And then somebody trumps them all and says, well, I'm going with Jesus. And how there's any debate after that, I don't know, but they do continue to debate. So it's I, I, I. They're calling on the names of leaders that represent their cause or their position. They really aren't boasting. I, I, I. They're not really boasting in these leaders. They're boasting in themselves. And the leaders, the leaders just give credibility they, they give credibility to each, each of these people who are rallying around them. They're, they're called on as an authority. So I'm going to elevate myself by identifying with Paul. I'm going to elevate myself by identifying with Apollos. In these kinds of debates and division, the goal is never to ultimately elevate a leader. It's to elevate the person who's identifying with the leader. Michael Jordan is arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. I'm with Michael Jordan in the NBA. No. Um, and uh, he arguably had his greatest game on March 28, 1990. It was a playoff game. It was a game against the Cavaliers where he scored uh, more points than he ever scored in a single game, 69 points. If you follow basketball at all, that is unbelievable. I couldn't score 69 points on my little kids when they were like three years old and we we're playing on the six foot. You know, I, they, I still lost. So 69 points against NBA defenders in a playoff game is astounding. He had 18 rebounds, which for a guy his height is unbelievable as well. And uh, so it was a, uh, you know, it was a banner performance uh, and something he's been remembered by because it was the game he scored the most points in, 69 points. That same game, that same season, uh, there was a rookie on the team named uh, Stacy King. He was a forward, and that night he made one free throw, so he scored one point. Uh, to Jordan's 69 points. And so after the game, as they were being, uh, players were being interviewed, obviously everybody wanted to talk to Jordan and ask about his performance. But someone spoke to Stacy King uh, about what he thought about the night. And his, his words have been remembered and repeated through the years. When they asked him about the night, he said, I will always remember tonight as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> he attached himself to the star 
and in his mind had a place in history, and actually he does, because 26 years later, I'm quoting him, and he's been, it's, it's been a, a memorable saying, but he attached himself to someone else, to an essence, he was joking, but to an essence, draw attention to himself. And we can so do the same thing. It is so easy to want to be thought of as right, to want to be thought of as better than someone else, and just a, a, make an appeal to someone or something outside of us. We can do this with other Christians, which is what's happening here. We can do it with other Christians, maybe from even other churches. Well, at my church, we dot, 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 an endorsement. I'm I'm attached with something that's better than what you're attached to. Well, really, the reformed view of that idea is dot, 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 fill in the blanks. We live in a celebrity culture a culture that is enamored with celebrity. Um, And unfortunately, that kind of um, cultural emphasis has, has come into the church as well. And so we have celebrity Christians, we have celebrity authors, we have celebrity leaders, leaders and authors that aren't perhaps, um, you know, chasing celebrity at all, but they are treated that way. Celebrity pastors, And it can be easy to say, well, my celebrity guru, whether it's a podcast I listen to or a book I read or a pastor or somebody, they say, he says, fill in the blank. It's easy to put ourselves forward as right by attaching ourselves to a view, a denomination, a church, an individual Now, we should be grateful for people that have influence on us. We should be grateful for our church, Uh, whether this is your church or you're part of another church. We should be grateful for that. But there's something very different than being grateful and asserting that we are right because we identify with some person or some group or some theology. Martin Luther, who's one of the most quotable guys in church history because he says stuff you're not supposed to say in church, and uh, he expresses himself in very, uh, very vivid language, at times very colorful language. Um, he was uh, an initiator in what's historically called the Protestant Reformation, where in the 1500s as a monk, he experienced... Um, he experienced the grace of God by reading the scripture and he came to the conviction that we are saved by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, because of Jesus Christ alone. And uh, this led to what ultimately was a break with the Roman Catholic Church and led to a, you know, a, a variety of different organizations and denominations over the years that are called Protestant, those who uh, separated themselves from the church. And early on, those who were separating themselves from the church because they were hearing Martin Luther's preaching and they were identifying with his teaching, uh, the report was made to Luther that there are actually some people starting to call themselves Lutherans, followers of Luther. And, uh, and you have to imagine, we can't even imagine that context because we've got Baptist and Methodist and Lutheran and Episcopal and Charismatic and Pentecostal, and we've got all kinds of denominations. So this just seems very normal to us. But at that point, there was one church 
and there weren't multiple denominations. So when he is saying, when they come to him and saying, hey, people aren't speaking of the church, they're starting to say, I'm Lutheran, I am following you. He was astounded by that. And you want to talk about a celebrity pastor, Luther is, to, you know, think about his, his legacy. I'm quoting him again today. That goes further than 1990 and Stacey King. <laughs> that goes to the 1500s. And uh, when they came to him and said, hey, people are starting to call themselves Luther, this is what he said, quote, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor, stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? Now, he didn't have a self-esteem problem. He doesn't need a big hug. He's going to be okay. Uh, but he was saying, in, compared to Jesus and compared to his glory, the fact that any of you guys would identify with me and put my name, uh, highlight me and my role, compared to Christ, I'm a stinking bag of maggots. And how could the children of Christ call themselves by my evil name? He's saying, compared to the beauty and the glory and the name of Jesus, my name is evil. Compared to the one that bled and died and gave his life, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, compared to him, I am nothing. The problem wasn't with Luther. The problem with those who were, were wanting to identify with him. And to be a part of the right, we're on the right side of history, they believed. We're on the right side. Why? Because we're with Luther. We're Lutherans. He's, he's, he's offended by the idea. Paul is offended by the idea. The Corinthians celebrate the idea. Author Stephen Um, who wrote a commentary on uh, Corinthians, he calls this what's happening in these verses. He calls it patronage. He says it's a it's a it's a description of of uh, the word patronage. Now listen to this and tell me if you can't relate to this. He says patronage is an attempt at self validation by means of another person's success or status. People tend to attach themselves to individuals, to causes, to industries and dreams that give them a vision of the world as they think it should be. There are identity attachments to schools, to roles, to jobs, etc. We become fierce evangelists for political parties, for diets, for methods of parenting and education. These things give us a sense of identity and purpose insofar as they make us different than or distinct from other people. Our patron-based identities necessarily build walls that destroy the shalom that we are seeking. Shalom means peace, the, the way God created and intends things to be, like we found in the garden this kind of shalom, this kind of peace, because we identify, and it, it can be all kinds of things. It doesn't have to be a theologian. He says it well. It could be a diet or a philosophy of parenting or education. Uh, it could be anything. That we begin to identify with that in the church. We begin to attach ourselves there. And when we do and attach that as our identity, we begin to build walls. 
And that's exactly what's happening there. We don't know what the various camps believed and what the various camps emphasized. We don't know. And isn't it good, thank the Lord, that he didn't tell us? Because otherwise we'd say, well, I'm not, I'm not doing that. But because it's just identifying with a leader, or we could broaden it and say identifying with a cause or a ministry or a philosophy, because if we broaden it like that, we all can find ourselves tempted. The Corinthians rally around a leader that makes them different and distinct from others. How does Paul respond to that? Well, he makes an appeal to the gospel. So there's a gracious appeal to family, a sober appeal to unity, a sobering appeal to unity, and this focused appeal to the gospel. Focused appeal to the gospel. See, the problem is not just that they had divisions. The problem is what underlies the divisions, they are committed to something other than the gospel as central. Now, they, they still believe the gospel, but the gospel, which is the message that Jesus Christ died in our place, he died for sinners, was crucified as our substitute, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. And anyone who turns from sin and trusts in him uh, receives new life as a, and becomes one with Christ. We experience union with Christ. So that's the message of the gospel and how we respond to the gospel. But this has not, this should be central, but it's been moved to the side. How do we know that? Look at verse 13. When he says, I follow so-and-so, I follow I, 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 he says, look, here's the problem. Verse 13, is Christ divided? He's challenging them to think about, no, Christ is not divided, yet they're acting like Jesus is divided or can be divided. He says rather in verse 10, have the same mind, have the same judgment, focus on Jesus as central, not the teaching of a leader or what you perceive to be the teaching of a leader, the cause of a leader. Don't, don't identify with a man, identify with Jesus, because when you elevate another person and when you identify with another person, you're divided among yourselves. Is Christ divided? Look at the next question. These are rhetorical questions, obviously. Was Paul crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? Why is anyone appealing to my name, Paul says? I didn't die for your sins. Why is there a focus on personalities? Why is there this unholy celebration of people as an effort to celebrate yourself ultimately and your agenda? Why are there rallying points around individual leaders' names instead of the person of Christ? Is he divided? Instead of the Savior who died for our sins, did Paul experience crucifixion on your behalf? No, he says. The problem is not just they're divided. The problem is they have displaced what is central, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's these first two questions. Is Christ divided? No, he's united. He is to be our focus. Did Paul, was Paul crucified for you? No, the crucifixion of Jesus is our focus. Jesus and the crucifixion. This is what's central. Look over to chapter 2, verse 2. This is why Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But the Corinthians know a lot of other stuff besides Jesus and him crucified, and that's why they are divided. Were you baptized, he asked, in the name of Paul? Verse 15, he goes on to say, no one, uh, so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. You're baptized in the name of the authority, the one you were following. 
We're baptized in the name of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. He said, were you, were you baptized in my name, Paul's name? No. You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord. I'm not. You don't follow me, he's saying. You follow Jesus. And in a verse that should be so encouraging to all the older people in the room like me, Paul says in Scripture, you know, I did baptize these people, Crispus, Gaius, I did baptize Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. So I love it, a verse that basically is about forgetfulness. Occasionally, I will ask someone, yeah, yeah, have you been baptized? Uh, Yeah, you baptized me. Well, I've now got a verse that says, just like the Apostle Paul, I forgot about you. And he forgot about the people he baptized. I don't even know who I baptized there. But I know this, you weren't baptized in my name. You weren't baptized in my name. This is verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. There's nothing wrong with being baptized or baptizing. The church is called to baptize as part of making disciples. We baptize people. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He's saying, I didn't come and baptize everyone so that you can say, I'm the founding church planter, the founding apostle. He baptized me. I'm with Paul. None of you can say that because I didn't baptize you folks. He can say that. I did come and announce the good news, which in chapter 15 he says is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. That is the good news. I came and brought you good news. That's what I will tell you. And I didn't come and bring it with eloquent wisdom. My delivery didn't wow everybody. I just brought solid content, but not eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So I didn't want to package the bringing of the gospel. I didn't want to make it slick. I wasn't, you know, we don't, in in Corinth, there were these uh, sort of wisdom gurus, philosophical uh, teachers that went around and spoke. They were paid uh, fairly large sums of money for delivering wisdom as itinerant uh, teachers. I, I don't know that we have anything quite like that in our culture. Maybe we might say something like a motivational speaker that comes in and is very polished, very funny, tells great stories, very slick production. Uh, it's lights, camera, action, and everybody's wowed at the speaker. Paul says, hey, when I came to you, I didn't do that stuff. Because I didn't want to empty the cross of Christ of its power. I wanted to declare plainly and simply and clearly Jesus Christ and him crucified so that everyone wouldn't say, wow, Paul's such a great speaker. But everybody would say, Jesus is such a great savior. I wanted you to see Jesus. And so that's how I came. And now you're taking other agendas and making them central. So here's what the message of the cross does. The message of the cross makes the work of Jesus central and not the work of man or woman. Because he came bringing the message of the cross, and because he didn't come with what sounded like real educated speech. Now you read his letters and you go, how can that be? Is Paul just like falsely humble? I mean, I read and go, not very eloquent, like I'm not sure I've read anything more eloquent. I don't know. It's possible. Have you ever heard someone speak? Maybe you read their book and then you went and heard them speak 
and you go, okay, the book was fantastic enough to get me to buy a ticket and come down here and hear them speak or whatever. The speech was okay. Uh, they're a better writer than they are a speaker. Maybe you've read people like that where you felt like, oh, when I heard them, it was a little bit disappointing. Th- that's the way the Corinthians feel about Paul. His content was unbelievable. It's possible his delivery lacked cultural wow factor. It appears Apollos had more of the wow factor than he did. So it may have lacked that. We don't really know. But Paul says, I'm not trying to be fancy, eloquent. I'm not trying to say, wow, he's incredible. I don't want that. I'm just trying to bring the simple gospel. I'm simply announcing good news. And because of that, when we focus on the good news, there can be a unity. When we move the good news to the side about Jesus and focus on something else, there will be division. We'll find a leader, an author, a doctrine, a practice, a methodology, a cause, a church, a theology, a denomination, a style, a thousand different preferences in church life, and we'll make that central. And then we have division. That's always what comes. Let me ask you how this lands on you, how it affects you, because we each have responsibility in a church here. We each have responsibility to say, what is central in my Christian life? What is central to me in the Christian life? Is it the gospel? Is it what Jesus has done? Or is it something else? I'm always looking for something. I'm like, okay, the gospel's, the gospel's good. I believe the gospel, but there's, there's more than that. This might be a new idea to you, but the gospel is not, in the Bible, the gospel is not introductory. And then once you believe the gospel, you become a Christian, then you get on to the real stuff. Then you get on to the discipleship material. You get on to the really mature, godly stuff. And you sort of leave the gospel behind. But we hear about it each Sunday because there may be somebody there that doesn't know the gospel. So we want them to hear the gospel and become a Christian. And then they can join us in our own quest for like a, uh, you know, living the Christian life my own way. You know, kind of of pursuing discipleship kind of a deal. But that's not the way it is. That's why Paul can say, when I was among you, I knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. How can he say that? Because right after saying that in chapter 2, there is a, there's another 14 chapters of material, and they're not all, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was buried, Jesus raised. He talks about all kinds of stuff. He talks about lawsuits, talks about idols, talks about the Lord's Supper, talks about spiritual gifts, talks about all kinds of stuff. But he can say, I knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. Why? Because that's the central message, and everything that he teaches springs from that. Everything is connected to Christ. Everything is connected to the grace of God in Jesus' death and resurrection. So that the gospel is not just what pardons me of my sin. The gospel is also the, the truth that empowers us to live for him. The gospel is the truth that strengthens us as we mature. The gospel is the truth that sustains us in times of difficulty, that grants us endurance to live out the Christian life. It's not the beginning, it's the beginning, the middle, and the end. And when we get to the book of Revelation at the end, we see that everyone is celebrating the lamb on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, who gave his life for us. It's not the elementary teaching that we move on from. 
It's not the appetizer. It's the appetizer, it's the meal, it's the dessert, and anything we teach about, whether it's prayer, whether it's evangelism, whether it's managing our finances, whether it's being a good employee or a good neighbor, it all must be connected to Jesus and him crucified. It all must be connected to the gospel. And that's what Paul is telling them here. So is that true for my Christian life? Or am I really looking to hear, am I most excited when something else comes? Am I most excited about Christ's death for me? Or am I most excited about evangelism? Whenever they talk about evangelism, that's when I get, yeah, I get amped when they bring the E word. That's when I'm evangelism or prayer. Maybe you're that kind of person or met that kind of person. Yes, I know the gospel, but we need to be a praying church. We need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for our city. Prayer, it's all about prayer for me. Maybe it's fellowship. We need to grow together. We need to be connected together. We need to be sharing our hearts together. We need to be helping one another grow. That's great, but do you know that how many billion people don't even know Jesus? Because we really, it's great that you're doing that, but we need to be focusing on missions. It's getting the gospel to the unreached. What's more important to the Lord than that? Well, that's great, but what about where we are right now? There's injustice all around us. We need to give ourselves to social justice. I'm waiting for the church to say something about that. I'm waiting, and when I hear it, yes, finally, that's what I'm about. Social justice justice. And we can take all of these various things and we can find that our hearts beat a little faster for them perhaps than Jesus and him crucified. That we're looking forward to jumping into that a little bit more than the basics of the gospel. We're more enth- when we're more enthused about anything than the gospel, it will affect the church. For a church that's more enthused about anything than the gospel, it will affect us. If we're more impressed with any person or anything in place of the gospel, if we have a pet doctrine that we're more excited about than the gospel, I'm talking about something true in the Bible. I'm not talking about a false doctrine, but if we're more excited about a, why, why don't they talk more about sovereignty? Why don't they talk more about spiritual gifts and the, and, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Why don't they talk more about how the world's going to end, the end times? I mean, I've heard him preach. I don't hear him talking about the end times. Doesn't he know how this current election lines up with the end times? No, I don't. I have no idea how this current election, except that I'm saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus which is an apolitical statement, but a sentiment that I think most of us feel. So what is, what is it? What kind of agenda? We can bring an agenda for the church. Some people want a reform theology-centered church, a spiritual gifts-centered church, a Bible study-centered church, a prayer-centered church, an evangelism-centered church, a church growth centered church, a worship centered church, a relationship centered church, a family centered church, a marriage and parenting centered church, a fellowship centered church, a sanctification centered church, a missions centered church. We could even have a unity 
Christ-centered church. But if any of those take the place of Christ and him crucified, we don't have God's purpose for the church because we are called to a Jesus Christ and him crucified centered church. That's the center. That's the emphasis. That's the glory. And all of those other things have their place. All of those other things that I mentioned are important. Of course, Bible study is important. Of course, missions is important. Of course, social justice is important. All of these are important in their place, flowing under the the glory of Jesus Christ and him crucified in their right place. Because the problem is, if my heart beats for one of those, now we have different gifts and different emphases, and we're created that way. We have different wirings, I think, at points, or we can be drawn to different things. But if those become central, then we got a problem. Because mission guy over here doesn't really get fellowship lady over here who doesn't really get prayer dude over here who, who's not in line with Bible study man over there. And they all wonder why their deal isn't the deal. And all of a sudden you have, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos. And we all got names that we can associate and denominations and movements and podcasts and websites that we can associate with all of those emphases. Have you read? Have you seen? Did you? Yes, we have all of that and we can move that to the center and we have a divided church. God's agenda for Corinth was that Christ be placed in the center, that his death and resurrection be what the church is most passionate about, that the cross of Christ not be emptied of its power because something like eloquent speech is highlighted, wisdom is highlighted, but that the cross of Christ is proclaimed and announced and celebrated so that it has power to convert the lost and to bring maturity to the saved and to unify us all around a gospel-centered church where the person and work of Jesus is highlighted. And the result of that kind of response from a people of God is that there will be a humility There will be a humility because we're not celebrating a man, we're not celebrating a people, we're not celebrating a philosophy, we're not celebrating a style, we're celebrating Jesus Christ. And so that means that creates a humility in all of us to be low before him and to highlight him. It means that the church is unified with one voice. That's what he said, saying the same thing, Jesus Christ is Lord the gospel. We're enamored with the gospel. We're drawn to the grace of God by the grace of God. He is our hope. He is our delight. He is our everything. We love to sing about him and what he's done for us in the gospel. We love to talk about him. We love to study the Bible and look for him. We love to celebrate communion and the Lord's Supper, which point to him. We love to pray to him. We love to tell our friends about him naturally because of who he is and what he means to us. And if you come in our midst, may you find vibrant evangelists. May you find studious and diligent uh, people who study God's word. May you find people's hearts given to prayer. May you find people generously using their resources for the good of others. May you find people who through their prayer and their giving and their going are seeking to reach the nations. May you find people who are compassionate towards the needy and reaching the outsider. May we find that. 
May we find all of those things and many, may we find people passionate about the worship of Jesus, but may we find people most of all who can say, you know what, Grace Church, when we're together, it's like we know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because there's nothing that glorious. There's no one that awesome. That's what grace does to build unity in the church. It creates us, makes us be people who are thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ, verses one through nine. It makes us a people who are unified about around, around what is central, verses 10 through 17. May God bring this kind of unity increasingly to us as we focus on his son. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.